Good morning, church. Before we begin, um, we do want to acknowledge uh, as your elders that we are aware of modifications that have been made to the ongoing uh, restrictions that are placed on the residents of California, uh, that at this time churches have been advised that they should not be singing out loud in the public, and uh, we want you to know that we're aware of those things, but we're also aware of the fact that the scripture tells us that we are to declare the glories of God through the, the words sung to him. And so we are continuing to sing. We also know that if this is something that is a burden to your heart and you feel convicted by that uh, and you don't feel comfortable singing, then we completely understand that and respect that. That is part of the reason why, as your church, we try to be very understanding of the fact that not everybody's on the same page with these things. We continue to run a live stream service, uh, which is actually quite improved this week, thanks to the efforts of some folks like uh, Mike Baria and Sam Ewald and some others that have helped us. We are now streaming through YouTube, um, direct feed from our computers, so we shouldn't have um, the noise problems that we were having with previous Zoom casts. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable being here on a Sunday um, for whatever reason, whether it's for your health or because you live or interact with somebody who's more vulnerable, then you will not be judged poorly for staying at home. We understand that not everybody is comfortable yet coming back, but we are also grateful to have this freedom to come and assemble and to show the Lord God that He is preeminent, that He is first in our lives, and that we have trust that the measures that He has led us to take uh, will do a, a lot to protect one another. There's no way we can completely mitigate risk, uh, but God's will will be done, and we're grateful to be able to gather together and to hear the, the voices of the church mingled together in glory for the Lord God. Well, this morning we're going to be beginning a new series in the book of 1 Corinthians. At 16 chapters long, this book matches Romans in length and fits into the same genre that Romans is written in. It is a personal letter from the Apostle Paul to a church that he helped found and has a great deal of affection for. If I had to distill the theme of this book down into one concise sentence, I might describe it like this. The church, being very precious to God, must be protected from infiltration by secular ideas and values. Christians are, are sometimes described in the Bible as sojourners. You know what that term means. A sojourner is one who is traveling through, somebody who has a final destination beyond where they are. But to be a sojourner is different than being a tourist. A tourist comes simply to observe. We have business to accomplish in this land. We are here with a mission. So while we have a destination that is beyond this place, we have things to accomplish while we are here. We want to be a people who influences the world for Christ, who bears the gospel in our word, in our deed, in our heart's desires. We want to make an impact where we are. So life is not like a safari, people where we stay in our safe car and we drive through and we get to see everything happening out the window, but we really don't have any impact on it. On the other hand, life as a Christian in the world is not exactly like being a foreign exchange student either. I've never been a foreign exchange student myself, but I've heard that those who are involved with foreign exchange programs are told to go and be like the culture that you have come to observe. In, in, Integrate yourself into that culture. Take on their habits. Learn to live like that people lived so that you might fully experience their culture. We are not like that as Christians. We are in this world and we have a mission to accomplish, but there is a degree of separation we need to maintain between us and the worldly corruption that surrounds us. We must learn to be set apart for the glory of God. We must learn to pursue holiness because the God who saved us and adopted us as his own children is holy. And we bear his image with a new sense of gratitude and respect for him, thanks to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Now, there are many reasons why this letter is important to the New Testament church. Let me give you several. First of all, 1 Corinthians, like all scripture, is God-breathed. That means the words we will be studying as we work through this book are not primarily Paul's words, though he penned them. They are the words of a God who inspired Paul to give his church the message 
that it needed. And when I say his church, this letter, though it is primarily to the Corinthian church, is to us as well. As we study through the letter from Paul to the believers in Corinth, it may feel at times as though we are eavesdropping on a kind of personal conversation, which we will be. Paul knows the people of this city, and they know him. So the letter will be addressing some issues that are sensitive and specific to a particular group of believers. And yet we have great confidence that the material here is crucial to God's people being able to not only understand how we are to live in the world that we live in and stay faithful to Jesus Christ, but it also contains the power to equip us to live as God intends us to live. These are not just Paul's words. They are the words of God carried to us by Paul. And so we need to approach them with that kind of understanding, with that kind of reverence, that they have authority over us and are a window of insight into how we can better serve our God. Now this letter, along with 2 Corinthians, contains valuable insights into how we're to fight for sanctity in the church, especially amidst sinful nations that we are living in. It is critical for the disciples of Christ to strike a biblical balance between dwelling alongside those who do not believe in such a way as we do, but also to live in such a way that we can love them and hopefully show them the light of the gospel while at the same time maintaining the unique distinctiveness of Jesus' righteousness that has been imputed to our hearts. So like Israel was to stand out in the world in the time of the Old Testament, amidst the covenants of Abraham and, and, and uh, David and Moses, so too are we to be a peculiar people, a people that stand out as unique in the world. We should never quite fit in to the world that we are in because we are sojourners here. We don't truly belong. So this letter contains some very crucial instruction on both the activity of the Holy Spirit and our theology of the resurrection, two areas I think the church really needs to grow in their understanding and belief. 1 Corinthians also establishes an attitude of great humility in regards to the wisdom that man might be able to have. And it gives us a fierce commitment to put Christ first in all matters of life. This precedence is priceless to the well-being of God's church today. Christ and Him crucified must remain the central and dominant theme of our existence. And Paul even confesses this later on in the letter that is the focus of what he wants the people in Corinth to know. Above all else, Christ and Him crucified. All created things orbit around the glory of Jesus and should rightly and joyfully subordinate themselves to that glory. So there is much for us to gain here. But we could have chosen a much easier book to study together. Why this letter is so difficult, there's a number of reasons, and I, I want to prepare you for this, because this is not going to be an, an easy walk in the park over the next couple of years as we study this book together. The culture that this letter is written to is drastically different from our own culture, and yet it is shockingly similar in some ways. We're going to have to be discerning to understand the ways that we might apply the principles of this letter to our modern situations. The topics that Paul engages in don't always seem to be particularly relevant to our culture. He speaks about whether you should eat meat that was sacrificed to idols and then sold into the markets. It's probably not something that's on your mind when you're over at Lucky's buying a tri-tip, right? He's going to speak about the dangerous influence of pagan god worship. And while I would contend, and, and we'll talk about this quite a bit, that idolatry is not dead in our society today, it is not as overtly religious as it was in the time of Jesus and the apostles. We're going to be talking about managing the miraculous sign gifts, which we don't see prevalently in the church today. We're going to talk about the validity of head coverings worn in worship probably a subject you haven't thought about a whole lot as we get into chapter 11 later on. We're going to talk about baptism for the dead. So there's some very sticky subjects in this letter, some very difficult doctrinal things that we will have to work through. And yet there isn't a wasted word in God's scripture to us. We need these writings. They are designed to inform and to equip us 
though their meaning is not always easily plucked from the surface of the letter. There are also wide-ranging interpretations of some of these trickier passages that we're going to dive into. And today's critical scholarship has done damage to the way that some of these things need to be understood in the church. It is not too hard to become confused and overwhelmed by the type of methodology that says, well, maybe it means this, or maybe it means that, or maybe it means these things. That kind of methodology is too often the muddying waters that keeps us from clarity in doctrine. The letter is also a response, the initial part to which we have no access. We don't have the first part of this ongoing Conversation. We'll discuss at length at a later time uh, the fact that 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are only a portion of the full conversation that was had between the Corinthian body and Paul and the other apostles. So we're going to have to try to fill in some gaps of what we don't know because they have not been revealed to us. So please be in prayer for your elders, church, as we embark upon this journey in 1 Corinthians. We're excited to tackle the content, but we're humbled by the scope and the difficulty of the task that is at hand. May the challenge only serve to drive us all the more closely to Christ, as without His guidance and wisdom, we could do great harm to ourselves by teaching these things wrongly. So be in prayer for us, please. Now, as we prepare to launch this journey, we're going to turn this morning not to 1 Corinthians, but actually to Acts 18. So open your Bibles to that passage of Scripture today. We're going to try to get a feel for what established Paul's connection to this Corinthian church in the first place. The Acts of the Apostles, as it is often referred to, could also be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because really it is a catalog, a record, of the amazing ways that the Holy Spirit worked through His church in its very formative years to establish belief well beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria as it even reaches to the ends of the earth. And so this is an account of Paul and his time spent in Corinth. We're going to begin with the first four verses and then we're going to add to that later in the sermon. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to pursue, persuade Jews and Greeks. Let's take a moment, church and ask God's blessing over our time together today. Father, we have a long road ahead of us, and it's going to take some time and much hard work to understand this book appropriately, God. I trust that these brothers and sisters are also pursuing other parts of your scripture on their own. Let us be a people who is intent to study you, God. May you be the object of our affections and desires. I pray, Lord God, that we would not be swept away by earthly distractions to the point where our time in your word is only but a small fraction of our day, but rather, Lord, let your word be foundational to all of our joy, to all of our confidence, to all of our peace. And so I pray that you would set our hearts on peace, at, at peace right now, Lord God, as we put our eyes on Christ and as we look at the way that Jesus used Paul to expand into the territory of Corinth and the ways that he challenged those believers to fix their attention and heart on you. We love you, God, and thank you that you have saved us in such a way, that you have sent your messengers into our lives, that we have heard the gospel preached, that we have responded to it thanks to the regeneration of your Holy Spirit, Lord God, that you might glorify yourself in our salvation. Help us to benefit from this time together. We love you and we need you. We pray this all in the name of our mediator, Jesus Christ. Amen. The first words of chapter 18 are, after this. So as we try to get a, a handle on what happens in chapter 18, it's worth taking a moment to say, after what? What Paul is saying here is, after Athens. Paul had just recently visited 
the city of Athens, which is a great intellectual hub. There he had presented the reality of the unknown God to the Greek philosophers there on the Areopagus. Corinthian church is born in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. There are three large waves of mission activity that Paul is involved in, at least that we know about in Scripture. And so this is in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. In A.D. 49, there had arisen a controversy in Galatia. We are well familiar with that if you've been with us for some time as we went through the book of Galatians not too long ago. The question and controversy there was, should the Gentile converts be circumcised? When a Gentile puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, must he take upon himself the mark of the law? And then must he and his family bear the law in order to qualify for salvation? The Jerusalem Council in late summer of that same year concluded that no, Gentile believers don't need to take the yoke of the law upon themselves because Christ Jesus, praise his name, has fulfilled that law in his own perfect life, which we will symbolically partake of later as we take of the bread. And he has given that perfect life as a sacrifice for sinners so that our inability to keep the law would not keep us out of heaven. So praise God. This council clarifies things. And that clarification sparks a new wave of mission activity out into the Gentile territories. Paul and Barnabas visit Galatia shortly after that verdict. They, they, they share the good news. They clarify things so that there is no root of false teaching um, dissuading the, the members there in Galatia. And then Paul and Barnabas split up. They have some disagreements, and so they decide to take two separate mission trips. Paul grabs Silas, his dear friend, and takes him with him. And they head back through the places that they had established on their first missionary journey as the first leg of the second journey. There they add Timothy to their ranks, who will prove to be a very useful asset in the mission, and then they soldier on. Now the Holy Spirit forbids them to travel east into Asia. The Holy Spirit also forbids them to travel from traveling north into Bithynia, two areas that they thought might be good to go. And so instead, based on a vision that Paul receives, the direction of the Holy Spirit guides them into Macedonia. And here they interact with several cities, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, starting churches in most of those territories. Now, in their process of starting these churches, there is no small price to pay for preaching the gospel and standing for the Lord. Uh, Paul himself experiences severe beatings along with several of the other apostles that are with him. They, they'd spend some time in jail for preaching the gospel. They are opposed by the Jewish leadership everywhere where they go. There's plenty of opposition, but there is also plenty of, plenty of converts. The church is growing. The church is building roots. The church is being established in territories where it had not been established before. And while the guidance of the Holy Spirit is directing this operation, the Apostle Paul is functioning as the leader of the team. An apostle is one who has seen Jesus in his resurrected state. And the Apostle Paul will later describe himself as, as an apostle born of ill time. That means that he came later than the other apostles and he considers himself to be the least of them. But nonetheless, Christ has spoken directly to Paul has given him instruction and guidance and has equipped him to equip the saints to be the church. Because of the nature of how God used this man, Paul was not called to grow a church over the course of decades. I am grateful that I've been able to serve First Family Church for 15 years of my life. And I hope in 15 years I'll be able to say, I'm grateful that I got to serve for 30. I love this church and I'm grateful to be able to, to develop my relationships with each of you and to see the Lord working through all of us together. Paul didn't have the same kind of freedom that I have to stay here. Paul was to plant a church, to establish leadership in that church, and then to go on to plant a new church. Recall that Paul is something of an unlikely character for the job. This unique calling might have positioned him to connect uniquely with Gentiles who needed to hear the gospel. Paul was one who started off as an opponent to the church. The very men who opposed him in each city where he tried to plant a church probably reminded him of himself before his encounter with Christ. 
He had ordered Christians put in jail. He had ordered Christians put to death for aligning themselves with Jesus Christ. And so this man, who was a Jew to the core, was radically transformed by the love of of Jesus and was commandeered for service to the kingdom. This one who was an unlikely champion for the gospel became one of its loudest, most predominant voices. And so when Paul goes to reach an area like Corinth, and the Jews there proved to be hostile to him up front, the people that knew the Old Testament and should have been expecting Messiah to come, who should have seen the ways that Christ's life and teachings fulfilled the prophecies and the signs that showed the nation of Israel who the Messiah would be. Though he met every requirement, they rejected. And so Paul then would begin to turn his focus to the Gentiles in that area. So I wonder if these Gentiles could relate to Paul, who was the least likely hero of the church, being as one who persecuted the church to begin with. And now he reaches out with this gospel that is completely foreign to these Gentiles who do not have the root of Scripture as their heritage. He shares with them this this message of resurrection, which to so many in the times was ridiculous. And yet to to the Holy Spirit and the work that it was doing amongst the people of these territories, there was a harvest to be harvested. And many came to know the Lord. Why would these Greeks... And Roman cultured people pay any attention at all to to what many assume was just another variation of the Jewish faith, which traditionally was not particularly inviting to Gentile nations. And yet, why would God use a man who had persecuted the church to be its leading evangelist? He did both of these things to plant the glory firmly on the Lord. This was not primarily an intellectual exercise. This was not cultural assimilation. This was God radically transforming people who were his enemies into his very family members. Now, verse 1 tells us that Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And so it seems appropriate to provide some civic context before we venture much further into the letter. Corinth had been a prominent city in in the Greek Empire years before the Romans began to rise to prominence. When the Romans did rise, there was a faction in the city of Corinth that was very opposed to that. And so in 146 BC, the city of Corinth, which was a bustling and robust community, a great great center of commerce and trade, was leveled, was laid to absolute waste. And for 102 years, no one lived in Corinth. It was desolate. It was desolate until Julius Caesar came to the throne and recognized its geographic potential and its historical significance and decided to rebuild Corinth from the ground up. So we are actually dealing with Corinth 2.0. And that's important to note because sometimes scholars will mix things up and they will describe the city of Corinth according to terms that existed 100 years before the Corinth that Paul is actually ministering to the people there. This place has a 4.5-mile isthmus, which is a a narrow land bridge between two bodies of water that connects Italy and Asia for trade. Now, that became a very strategic part of the culture. This is a more zoomed-in picture. You can see that small landmass right where the red dot uh, indicates Corinth was founded. There are two harbors, therefore, that are in control by the Corinthian government. And any ship that did not want to venture southward around the tip of the Peloponnese, which was a very treacherous journey, would save 200 miles of of sailing by portaging their goods over that isthmus landmass. So ships from Asia would port on the right, and they would offload their goods. They would be carried by dry transportation across to the other bay, and another ship would then be commissioned to take it the rest of the way to Italy and Rome. This, as you can imagine, gave a huge economic advantage to the city of Corinth. To experience this portage, taxes and uh, duties had to be paid to Corinth, and so money flowed there. Since 600 BC, whoever was in charge of Corinth was always proposing to dig a canal through that isthmus so that ships could travel through. But that only came to actual fruition in 1923, and that canal is still in use today. But in the first century, the city's 
two ports brought goods across by dry transportation. Now, there was a, a large geographical feature in the city of Corinth, which was important as well. It was called the Acro-Corinth. It was a mountain, uh, roughly half or two-thirds the size of Mount Diablo. And this mountain was positioned in such a way that it didn't impede business, but it gave a nice feature of defense that kept the city from being attacked easily by foreign navies or land troops. So Corinth was fairly stable as far as military defense was concerned. Corinth was originally settled by Roman freedmen. If you've studied much about the Roman Empire, you've probably read that as many as two-thirds of Rome's population existed of bond servants, people who had written a note of, uh, of service, and Paul is mocking me right now and saying, just say slaves. They were slaves, that's fine. Uh, bond servants were those who were commissioned to work for a certain period of time because their debts were too great for them to pay off themselves. And it was either jail or servanthood. They had very little in the way of rights. And that, that large mass of people, when they would fulfill their debt, their bond would then be set free and they would flood the Roman market with unemployment. So the Romans decided that since they were rebuilding Corinth, they would offer freed bondsmen the chance to go and relocate down to Corinth and to be given a parcel of land to develop as a partial Roman citizens. This solved two problems. It gave Corinth a distinctly Roman feel, but it also kept unemployment down in Italy and solved the problem of a flooding of, of freed bond servants, which was always an issue that they had to contend with. Because of its recent founding, it did not benefit from a lasting tradition of wisdom and experience. In other words, this city was kind of sophomoric. It was immature in its heritage. It didn't have a deep and rich history to draw from. They had not made as many mistakes as a place like Rome had made that they could learn from. There were not many as, as many legal precedents set in that city. And so there was a lot of immorality, a, lot, a lack of ethical maturity in that place. Because of its recent founding, they had to struggle with a lot of questions about their own identity as a city. There were influences from many different parts of the world that kept them from being uniquely Corinth. At the time the church was brought to this city, uh, it had grown to such a degree that it served as the capital of the province of Achaia, and it held a great importance to the Roman Empire. Eventually, a dynamic, a dynamic hodgepodge of different people groups began to see the potential for trade and profit there and filled that place and settled the area well. And this culminated in a mixture of, of immigrant heritages and a lack of a unified culture. Economic diversity is also clear as <clears throat> chapter 11 will tell us that the rich and the poor were not treated with equity at the Lord's table. So this was not a place where everyone was flourishing. Many people flocked to Corinth with the hope of becoming rich, but not everybody struck it rich. So there were extremely rich people in Corinth and extremely poor people in the same place. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. So this great diversity wasn't inherently a problem to the church because the church, friends, should be one of the most diverse organizations in the planet because God does not esteem our heritage. He calls us from our sin to be a part of His family. But the diversity also meant that there was less of a common belief to serve as a standard for civil, civil action. Immoral behavior became very commonplace and liberal attitudes towards sin in general were the predictable product of dozens of competing systems of morality and a transient type of population of merchants coming and going through the city. All of these things add up to create a formidable challenge to Paul as he enters into Corinth to hope to evangelize it. Corinth was the largest city, the largest Gentile city that, that Paul had tried to settle a church in up to this point. He had just experienced the wear and the tear of constant resistance in the previous settlements that he had tried to minister to. And the fact that he came into the city by himself at first were all very intimidating factors that perhaps might have set Paul on edge. 
So I think it's significant to note here in the first verses of Acts 18, the ways that the Lord ministered to his apostle as he enters into this service here. Let me point out two distinct ways. First of all, the Lord allowed Paul to serve alongside friends. I can't say enough as a minister of the gospel how important it is to have brothers and sisters that you trust in the Lord serving by your side. Though Paul left Athens and entered Corinth by himself, God made sure that he was not alone for long. Aquila and Priscilla are two of the very first people that Paul meets in that place, and lo and behold, they're believers. Having been ordered to leave Rome, they relocated to Corinth. They share not only Paul's love for the gospel, but also his skills in tent making. And they bond so strongly on this mission that Aquila and Priscilla, later on, pick up and follow Paul when he moves to Ephesus after his work in Corinth is done. Not long after that, Timothy and Silas, two of Paul's most trusted allies, sail from Macedonia and join them there in Corinth. They had separated for a time to deal with some business in the churches in Macedonia, but these two entrusted companions soon rendezvous with Paul in the port city of Corinth. Missions, friends, is a group effort. It is not an activity that is dominated by all stars. It is something that happens when God's people come together and work towards a common goal. Paul was rarely alone for long in any of his mission journeys. God even provided men to minister to him when he was in prison for extended periods of time. The support of friends who also trust the Lord is so critical to what we do. And we're going to see that uh, the, the, the Corinthians were gambling with their friendships in the first portion of the letter. They were not taking these Christian relations very seriously. They were not united as they should be. But Paul, as he established the city, benefited from the blessing of united work with people who were like-minded and shared the same doctrine as he. As we return to our text, Acts 18, 5-8 says, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This was a Hebrewism, a, a, a physical expression that communicated a feeling of the heart as he shook his garments out. What he was saying is, the dust of your land is no longer my concern. You have been showed the gospel and you have rejected it. The responsibility is on your hearts. Verse 7, and he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Together with his entire household, And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Paul and the others approached both Jews and Greeks. They preached in the synagogue, but were rejected there. In turn, Paul rejected his focus on the, the Israelites, declaring that from then on he would pursue the Gentiles with the gospel. Not only did God provide other missionaries to help with Paul, But many native Corinthians joined this mission quickly, giving them local allies and men into which they could pour the word. He joined up with a man named Titius Justus, whose home was next door to the synagogue. Talk about a divine intervention. Though he had been kicked out of the synagogue and was no longer able to preach there, the next door neighbor to the synagogue said, I believe this gospel that you're preaching. Come and continue to share the gospel right here in this strategic location, right next door to where many of the Jews would hear it. despite most Corinthian Jews opposing Paul, the leader of the synagogue, a man named Crispus, believed along with his whole household. So Paul was not alone there for very long. God provided for him godly companions by which he might minister. Secondly, what God does for Paul here in this big challenge of, of trying to win Corinth for Christ, the Lord comforted Paul with a promise. Now this is a very uh, unique Revelation. So Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 11 says this. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, 
and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. This was extremely rare for Paul to do. Now, Paul didn't get 15 years in Corinth or 30 years, but a year and a half was a remarkably long amount of time for the apostle to stay. And so he developed strong bonds with the people there. He was able to pour into the men who would then step up and be elders in the church once he had left. This was in such contrast to what Paul had to deal with to that point. Rejected by his countrymen, beaten and jailed in Philippi, angry mobs in Thessalonica and Berea, slander everywhere he went. The average stay in a given city up to this point on the second mission journey was only a few weeks, and that coincided pretty accurately with the amount of time they were able to spend in cities on their first missionary journey too. But here in Corinth, God grants Paul with an unusually long stay. It was not without conflict, but Paul was able to work in Corinth from perhaps March of 50 A.D. to about September of 51 A.D. Ephesus is really the only church where Paul ministered longer, according to the records that we have. I want you to look again at verses 9 through 11 and consider for a minute. Look at this promise that God made to Paul. Consider whose mission is this. We often refer to this as Paul's second missionary journey. And that's for ease of reference. But really, whose mission is this? This is God's mission. This is the mission that God has set his servant upon. And the itinerary has been set in heavenly places far before it is revealed to Paul and his companions. So far on this second missionary trip, don't forget, the Holy Spirit has already dissuaded them from going to places they thought might be good to go. They were not allowed to preach in Asia or Bithynia. They were directed instead to Macedonia. So God is the one who is calling the shots. God is the one who is setting the standards for what they do and how they do it. And just a quick recap of how they tried to win Corinth at first. Verse 4, Paul reasons with the Jews. This is in line with his normal uh, method of trying to reach an area. Verse 6, the Jews reviled him and largely rejected him, although not completely, because we see that Crispus believed, right? And so his focus shifts from the Jewish synagogue to the Gentile um, people in Corinth who may believe. Did Paul put an absolute halt here to his outreach to the Jews? Some people want to cast Paul as a minister only to those who are not from the Jewish faith, and that's just not accurate. In fact, as we read on in chapter 18, it's clear that the answer to that question is no. Paul did not cease reaching uh, Jewish people But his focus now became fixed upon the Gentiles. Let's read in verses 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, then see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. This is typical of a secular leader in an area. They didn't want riots. They didn't want uprisings. Gaius comes in and he sees, or Gallio comes in and he can see that this is a local skirmish that can be handled in-house. And so he washes his hands of it, verse 16. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now listen to this. You might pass that name up uh, if you weren't looking critically at the text. Who was the leader of the synagogue? Crispus. But Crispus was saved by the preaching of Paul. And so it follows that he was then rejected from the synagogue as well. He was put out. Who replaced him? A man named Sosthenes. And we see here that Sosthenes, who replaced Crispus, also must have come to know the Lord because he is punished by these Jewish people who are angry at the mission of the church. He is beaten in front of the tribunal and he is put out as well. And guess whose name appears alongside Paul's at the greeting to the letter to the Corinthians? Sosthenes. So another Jewish man saved in the mission of Paul and the other apostles. So though his focus shifts from the Jewish people to the Gentiles, 
We must not become confused and think that Paul was unwilling to win Jews to Christ. If he had the opportunity, he would still step through that door and share the gospel and lead his countrymen to the Lord. In fact, in the Romans letter, he tells us how deeply his heart yearns for his fellow countrymen to know Jesus Christ as Savior. 1 Corinthians 12.2 does help us to see, though, that the majority of those who believed in Corinth would turn out to be Gentile believers. He says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Referencing to his brothers and sisters there in Corinth, he's indicating that they were formerly largely pagans, worshiping at false idols and temples, but now God had changed their heart to worship the one Lord and and, and God alone, Jesus Christ. So it is wonderful, friends, to read through the New Testament and to see and witness the fulfillment of the covenantal promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants. You might recall that God had promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that he would bless them and make his name great, that he would be also a blessing to other nations. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we're seeing that as these these Gentile nations are now being blessed by the gospel that springs forth from Abraham's descendant. As Gentiles began to hear the gospel and by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, many of them began to believe. The nations were not only blessed by Abraham's seed, they began to come alongside them in brotherhood. But the wide-scale introduction of people from such diverse backgrounds, cultures, and religious histories did not happen without complications. And this is really going to start to drive at the focus of the letter to the Corinthian church. As the church begins to fill with Gentile converts, the leadership of the church must be careful that those who immigrate to Christ don't try and bring too much of their old sinful identity with them in such a way that the church of God becomes defiled by habits that don't belong among God's people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ today, if you have put your faith and hope in Christ alone, then what you were before you gave your life to Christ, is considered dead now. It is passed away. This is such a radical transformation that you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. And since you are a new creation, let us live as such, not in the pattern of our former life of disobedience and wandering, but in this new life that we have been given through the Holy Spirit. Diversity has real merit. We are made stronger by the different cultures that come to comprise the church. Various economic strata come together in united faith to Jesus Christ. We see people from backgrounds all over the world, from histories and and, and heritages that, that are vastly different, that are brought to the table in a church that is gathered from many different peoples. There's not only beauty in this, but there is strength and depth in this. As God saves people from all over the world, the church begins to bring ideas and thoughts from different places, and we get to see the history of of God working through people who are very, very different, and yet the power of Christ can unite them and make them strong. But when it comes to faith, diversity is not truly our aim. Unity must be our aim. Diversity must be valued, but it must be valued below more important virtues. Truth, holiness, and love for God's image bearers must all be esteemed more important than our heritage and our background. The fact that God will save regardless of nationality means that we must be careful not to exalt our nationality or our cultural identities above that which really matters, a repentant heart, a heart that recognizes that all men are, are gripped by the same problem, the universal problem of sin. Sin is not peculiar to one type of people. It is inherent in all men because all men have descended from Adam. Here's where we're seeing a problem with the swell of social justice emphases in America today. 
there is an influential surge in the idea that injustice is primarily the product of prejudices based on race. While there are undeniable injustices that are being committed in our nation, many of which are fueled by race and by prejudice, it is dangerous to overemphasize race as the primary cause for that problem. We need to push back against that mentality because sin is the true problem. And if we substitute that and say the problem is your broken nationality which is privileged or your nationality which makes you inferior to another, then we are missing the point. The point is that we are all together in sin and all in need of a Savior. And friends, there's only one. You're not going to get salvation through changing your nation's laws or by shaming people who have done wrong or by building better ethics and, 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 and legislation. You're going to get salvation in one place only, and that is through Jesus Christ. If I am to believe the current narrative that is being aggressively preached in the culture today, then the color of my skin is the thing that critically defines me as either oppressor or oppressed. And if I buy into that mentality, I have allowed the culture to define me in ways that fall short of how Christ defines me. Identity politics undermines the fact that as a believer, you are defined and identified in Christ. You belong in Him. You are what He has made you to be, regardless of what you were before. Now, in the context of the Corinthian church, this body of believers was too heavily influenced by the force of the culture around them, the culture that so many of the members had only recently converted from. And so they needed to see from, from the pen and the mouth of Paul that Christianity is not a modification of what you were. It is a complete redefinition of your very being. Many of these Corinthians either must, misunderstood that or they rejected that because it seemed too costly to them. Friends, don't make the mistake of thinking this is just a problem for baby Christians. Yes, Corinth was a fledgling community of believers. And many of them had just recently, in the last two years, come to Christ. But this is a problem for many who came to Christ early and didn't realize the radical nature of their salvation and so have lived for decades thinking that Christ can be conveniently placed in just a portion of their life and brought along as they live more or less how they lived before they found Christ. When in reality, they should be dead to the life before they should be alive now and redefined in Christ. Older believers, or older believers have to understand that, that these concepts are relevant to them as well. 1 Corinthians 3.3 says, For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Or as other translations say, merely as humans. And this really captures the thesis of the letter to the Corinthians that these brothers and sisters in Christ did not understand that they had been made something more than human by God. That they could not just walk in these earthly ways that were very familiar to them, but which they needed to become separated from. The church of God must be more than merely human. We must become faithful to the one who is greater than humanity. Discipleship is an ongoing process of pruning away that which does not belong in the heart of a believer. And so take note as we go that Paul does not address the Corinthians despite their serious sin problems. He does not address them as non-believers or with intense scorn. He is convinced that they have faith, but he is also convinced that that faith must grow, that it cannot stay immature and juvenile forever. And so he urges them on to a greater love for purity and for holiness, and for like-mindedness with Christ. Acts 18, verse 19, says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers, and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Shentre, he had cut off his hair, for he was under a vow, and they came to Ephesus. So Paul has left the church at Corinth behind, Eventually, he settles in Ephesus after traveling around a little bit. And Ephesus is a church that he stays at for the longest amount of time. 
Don't forget Sosthenes, Crispus' replacement in the synagogue, was beaten either for believing or tolerating the Christian preaching. So Paul and Sosthenes apparently leave together. They land in Ephesus where Paul spends his long tenure, but his heart is still on those Corinthian brothers and sisters. He maintains contact with them. He cares for them and loves them still, even though he is not face-to-face with these brothers and sisters. Though he had to depart, he retained a love for the people of Corinth, along with frequent contact to them. And in in your note sheet, we're not going to get into it too much for time today, but I did include a little description of the fact that 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians are only a portion of this conversation back and forth between the Corinthians and their founding apostle, Paul. This attitude of Paul's that wants to stay connected, that wants to continue to love, even though he's got other things on his plate now, even though he has new mission fields to to tap, he still cares for the Corinthians, and this should speak to our love for one another as a church. We are to truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where we are. We're to love them enough to put our differences aside. We're to love them to the degree that, that we are making an effort to stay connected to one another. Are we doing that, friends? To those of our church who are watching on YouTube, I pray that people are reaching out to you to stay connected with you so that we as a church might not feel separated and divided, that this quarantine time does not have to disunify us, that we should be as Paul is with a heart that loves enough to reach out and make an effort to stay united to people, even to people who are frustrating us, even to people who don't think exactly how we are thinking. Let us continue to stay connected to those who call in the name of Christ. As Paul, we are to love our brothers and sisters enough to want what is best for them, which is a life fixed and focused on Jesus and not on the fleeting things of the world. We are to love them enough to even confront them if necessary, to sit by them as we encourage them to reject the temptation of the world and the tendency to dilute our faith with the culture that surrounds us. Christ had established his church in Corinth, and they were to be set apart ones. But yet, as Gordon Fee describes it, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them, emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. This is what this letter attempts to do. The church today is in need of a similar procedure, isn't it? We see all around us a culture that is pressing against the walls of God's church, pressing to get inside, pressing to infiltrate with ideas that do not originate in Scripture and in so many ways are very opposed to them. And so church, this is, is, this is a letter that should teach us not to be absolutely cut off from the world because then we would not be effective in ministering to them, but to learn how to exist among those who are lost in such a way that we might be a bridge to bring them to the gospel, that they might hear the words of truth and have their lives changed forever. Let the words of this letter remind us of who we are to be in Christ. Let this letter urge us on to a greater holiness. We have come to that time because it is the first Sunday of the month where we transition our thoughts to the elements that are before us on the table. We're going to experience a divinely appointed picture of that grace of God by which he saves us. It, has, uh, it is appropriate for us as brothers and sisters in Christ to take time occasionally to really put our thoughts and minds on the work of the cross, on the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for this is what defines us. Jesus has redefined us by his blood and turned a relationship of hostility and rebellion into a union of grace and love. And so we're going to celebrate that restored fellowship with God this morning as we observe the sacrament of communion.